Part five of Mudfog and Other Sketches by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Newfound. Some particulars concerning a lion. We have a great respect for lions in the abstract. In common with most other people, we have heard and read of many instances of their bravery and generosity. We have duly admired that heroic self-denial and charming philanthropy which prompts them never to eat people, except when they are hungry, and we have been deeply impressed with a becoming sense of the politeness they are said to display towards unmarried ladies of a certain state. All natural histories teem with anecdotes illustrative of their excellent qualities, and one old spelling-book in particular recounts a touching instance of an old lion of high moral dignity and stern principle who felt it his imperative duty to devour a young man who had contracted a habit of swearing as a striking example to the rising generation all this is extremely pleasant to reflect upon and indeed says a very great deal in favour of lions as a mass we are bound to state, however, that such individual lions as we have happened to fall in with have not put forth any very striking characteristics, and have not acted up to the chivalrous character assigned them by their chroniclers. We never saw a lion in what is called his natural state, certainly. That is to say, we have never met a lion out walking in a forest, or crouching in his lair under a tropical sun, waiting till his dinner should happen to come by hot from the baker's. But we have seen some under the influence of captivity and the pressure of misfortune, and we must say that they appeared to us very apathetic, heavy-headed fellows. The lion at the zoological gardens, for instance. He is all very well. He is an undeniable mane, and looks very fierce. But, Lord bless us, what of that? The lions of the fashionable world look just as ferocious and are the most harmless creatures breathing. A box-lobby lion or a Regent Street animal will put on a most terrible aspect and roar fearfully if you affront him, but he will never bite, and if you offer to attack him manfully, will fairly turn tail and sneak off. Doubtless these creatures roam about sometimes in herds, and if they meet any especially meek-looking and peaceably disposed fellow, will endeavour to frighten him. But the faintest show of a vigorous resistance is sufficient to scare them even then. These are pleasant characteristics, whereas we make it a matter of distinct charge against the zoological lion and his brethren at the fairs that they are sleepy, dreamy, sluggish quadrupeds. We do not remember to have ever seen one of them perfectly awake, except at feeding time. In every respect we uphold the biped lions against their four-footed namesakes, and we boldly challenge controversy upon the subject. With these opinions it may be easily imagined that our curiosity and interest were very much excited the other day, when a lady of our acquaintance called on us and resolutely declined to accept our refusal of her invitation to an evening party. For, said she, I have got a lion coming. We at once retracted our plea of a prior engagement, and became as anxious to go as we had previously been to stay away. We went early, 
and posted ourselves in an eligible part of the drawing-room, from whence we could hope to obtain a full view of the interesting animal. Two or three hours passed, the quadrilles began, the room filled, but no lion appeared. The lady of the house became inconsolable, for it is one of the peculiar privileges of these lions to make solemn appointments and never keep them, when all of a sudden there came a tremendous double rap at the street door, and the master of the house, after gliding out, unobserved, as he flattered himself, to peep over the banisters, came into the room, rubbing his hands together with great glee, and cried out in a very important voice, "'My dear, Mr.' naming the lion, "'has this moment arrived.' Upon this all eyes were turned towards the door, and we observed several young ladies, who had been laughing and conversing previously with great gaiety and good humour, grow extremely quiet and sentimental while some young gentlemen, who had been cutting great figures in the facetious and small-talk way, suddenly sank very obviously in the estimation of the company, and were looked upon with great coldness and indifference. Even the young man who had been ordered from the music-shop to play the pianoforte was visibly affected, and struck several false notes in the excess of his excitement. All this time there was a great talking outside more than once accompanied by a loud laugh, and a cry of, "'Oh, capital! Excellent!' from which we inferred that the lion was jocose, and that these exclamations were occasioned by the transports of his keeper and our host. Nor were we deceived, for when the lion at last appeared, we overheard his keeper, who was a little prim man, whisper to several gentlemen of his acquaintance, with uplifted hands, and every expression of half-suppressed admiration, that, naming the lion again, was in such cue to-night. The lion was a literary one. Of course there were a vast number of people present who had admired his roarings, and were anxious to be introduced to him, and very pleasant it was to see them brought up for the purpose, and to observe the patient dignity with which he received all their patting and caressing. This brought forcibly to our mind what we had so often witnessed at country fairs, where the other lions are compelled to go through as many forms of courtesy as they chance to be acquainted with, just as often as admiring parties happen to drop in upon them. While the lion was exhibiting in this way, his keeper was not idle for he mingled among the crowd, and spread his praises most industriously. To one gentleman he whispered some very choice thing that the noble animal had said in the very act of coming upstairs, which, of course, rendered the mental effort still more astonishing. To another he murmured a hasty account of a grand dinner that had taken place the day before, where twenty-seven gentlemen had got up all at once to demand an extra cheer for the lion and to the ladies he made sundry promises of interceding to procure the majestic brute's sign-manual for their albums. Then there were little private consultations in different corners, relative to the personal appearance and stature of the lion, whether he was shorter than they had expected to see him, or taller, or thinner, or fatter, or younger, or older, whether he was like his portrait, or unlike it 
and whether the particular shade of his eyes was black or blue or hazel or green or yellow or mixture. At all these consultations the keeper assisted, and, in short, the lion was the sole and single subject of discussion till they sat him down to whist, and then the people relapsed into their old topics of conversation, themselves and each other. We must confess that we looked forward with no slight impatience to the announcement of supper, for if you wish to see a tame lion under particularly favourable circumstances, feeding-time is the period of all others to pitch upon. We were therefore very much delighted to observe a sensation among the guests, which we well knew how to interpret, and immediately afterwards to behold the lion escorting the lady of the house downstairs. We offered our arm to an elderly female of our acquaintance, who, dear old soul, is the very best person that ever lived, to lead down to any meal. For, be the room ever so small, or the party ever so large, she is sure, by some intuitive perception of the eligible, to push and pull herself, and conduct her close to the best dishes on the table. We say we offered our arm to this elderly female and descending the stairs shortly after the lion, were fortunate enough to obtain a seat nearly opposite him. Of course the keeper was there already. He had planted himself at precisely that distance from his charge which afforded him a decent pretext for raising his voice when he addressed him, to so loud a key as could not fail to attract the attention of the whole company and immediately began to apply himself seriously to the task of bringing the lion out and putting him through the whole of his manoeuvres. Such flashes of wit as he elicited from the lion. First of all they began to make puns upon the salt-cellar, and then upon the breast of a fowl, and then upon the trifle. But the best jokes of all were decidedly on the lobster salad, upon which latter subject the lion came out most vigorously, and in the opinion of the most competent authorities quite outshone himself. This is a very excellent mode of shining in society, and is founded, we humbly conceive, upon the classic model of the dialogues between Mr. Punch and his friend the proprietor, wherein the latter takes all the uphill work, and is content to pioneer to the jokes and repartees of Mr. P. himself, who never fails to gain great credit and excite much laughter thereby. Whatever it be founded upon, however, we recommend it to all lions, present and to come, for in this instance it succeeded to admiration, and perfectly dazzled the whole body of hearers. When the salt-cellar and the fowl's breast and the trifle and the lobster salad were all exhausted, and could not afford standing-room for another solitary witticism, the keeper performed that very dangerous feat which is still done with some of the caravan lions, although in one instance it terminated fatally, of putting his head in the animal's mouth, and placing himself entirely at its mercy. Boswell frequently presents a melancholy instance of the lamentable results of this achievement, and other keepers and jackals have been terribly lacerated for their daring. It is due to our lion to state that he condescended to be trifled with in the most gentle manner, and finally went home with the showman in a hack-cab, perfectly peaceable, 
but slightly fuddled. Being in a contemplative mood, we were led to make some reflections upon the character and conduct of this genus of lions as we walked homewards, and we were not long in arriving at the conclusion that our former impression in their favour was very much strengthened and confirmed by what we had recently seen. While the other lions receive company and compliments in a sullen, moody, not to say snarling manner, these appear flattered by the attentions that are paid them while those conceal themselves to the utmost of their power from the vulgar gaze, these court the popular eye, and unlike their brethren, whom nothing short of compulsion will move to exertion, are ever ready to display their acquirements to the wondering throng. We have known bears of undoubted ability, who, when the expectations of a large audience have been wound up to the utmost pitch, have peremptorily refused to dance well-taught monkeys who have unaccountably objected to exhibit on the slack wire, and elephants of unquestioned genius who have suddenly declined to turn the barrel organ. But we had never once knew or heard of a biped lion, literary or otherwise, and we stated as a fact which is highly creditable to the whole species, who occasion offering did not seize with avidity on any opportunity which was afforded him of performing to his heart's content on the first violin. End of part five.